Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Music can be a sanctuary, and that idea is at the heart of a new recording by soprano Maria Clark and pianist-composer Maria Thompson Corley. Later this hour, they'll take us through soul sanctuary, spirituals, and hymns. First, Alton Brown has been touring major cities across the U.S., promoting his new cookbook, and he saved the best for last, that being his hometown of Atlanta. On Wednesday, May 11th, the James Beard and Peabody Award-winning chef and host of Good Eats will give a talk and book signing at Variety Playhouse for Good Eats for the final years. He joins us now via Zoom. Alton Brown, welcome back to City Lights. Hey, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. A joy. Now... Your popular show, Good Eats, stopped production in 2011. And about six years later, you decided to rewatch some of the old episodes. Curious to hear your impressions about those earlier shows and if you'd tell us what happened after that. Well, it had always been my intention to take a few years off and then start making new shows, which we we did with the show Good Eats, The Return. But as I had gone back and started watching some older shows and looking at older recipes, I was like, wow, I would do that differently now. <laughs> you know, a lot has changed in the culinary world. I mean, we all know more than we used to know, but also ingredients have certainly changed. More things are available. People are willing to spend a bit more time. You know, it used to be we had to make everything kind of as easy as possible. And, and I looked at some of those earlier recipes and realized, well, I think people are, are probably willing now to spend a little bit more time uh, getting it right. So I decided to do a show called Good Eats Reloaded, where I took old shows and cut myself back into them to make uh, repairs and renovations, uh, which I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the first time anybody's done that. And it was certainly challenging from a technical standpoint to try to weave a new version of yourself into old shows. But, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, well, hard. It's funny to look back on yourself 20 years younger and think, oh my gosh, what a goofball. <laughs> 
So I kind of had to face uh, that, you know, that version of myself. But it gave me an opportunity to update a lot of food. I do want to say that there was a third season of the reloads in the works. We never got to to make that show because of budget issues, but uh, we did all the recipes. So there's actually a whole nother season of uh, renovated recipes in the in the new book. I have to tell you, Alton, I really admire your candor about getting a lot of things wrong. Not many people would admit that, or they'd spin it differently. How does this book demonstrate your aim to get things right? Well, first, I won't say that I got everything wrong. There were there were a few things that were just wrong, <laughs> because in the early days when I was trying to make a name for myself, I might have erred on the side of cleverness, which has often been a downfall for me. So not everything, but not everything needed to be repaired. Some things are just like when you've got so many more ingredients available now because of the internet, you could really upgrade things. So I, I just want to say it wasn't that I was all wrong all the time, but I, I do think that you've got to be able to look at whatever your body of work is during your life and update it. And make it the best that it can be. I know that's not actually answering your question, but I certainly have read of composers, you know, painters that go back into a canvas and strip something down and re- repair it. I think that we kind of owe it to ourselves, not to mention our, our fans, to make sure that whatever is out there is as good as we can make it. And that's really tough in this day and age, because once stuff is out there electronically on, on the web, it's almost impossible to get back. It's difficult. But I, I think that, that for me personally, it's, it's kind of part of what makes the, the work solid. Hmm. You're right that when you proposed Good Eats Reloaded, the president of the Food Network ordered 12 episodes. How did that lead to season one of Good Eats, The Return? Well, I'd always thought that I would make the return. I, I That had always been on my to-do list. But then when I decided to do a season of, of uh, reloads first, it definitely affected or, or informed how the new work uh, was done. One of the things that I had always wanted to be able to do was spend a bit more time on historical examination of dishes and anthropology. So that was that was something big that happened there. But the, the really kind of big surprise is that the network then said, well, we'd like to have another season of the reload. So we did a reload, me thinking, oh, okay, that's it. Now I'm just going to make new shows. Then we made a season of the new ones. And then we went back and made another season of the old ones. So what was kind of a challenge for me was to say, ah, well, I've, I've got to really now dig in deep to my old work and say, okay, what, what could I do different? What should I do different? What would I do different? And that's, you know, that, that's a lot of, of work because it requires you to question everything that you've, you've done and every decision that you've made. And that, that takes some, uh, some dark nights of the soul. Oh, yeah. And so what we have in this new book is five seasons worth of shows, three reloadeds and two returns. Right. To your point about food history, I got to tell you, my husband, Don, was immediately drawn to your chapter on latkes. Whole latke love. Whole latke love, yeah. (laughs) The history you provide is thorough and fascinating. I'm talking illuminating. I don't imagine there are many cookbooks that reference this Spanish Inquisition, Alton, but you do. I went to four years of Hebrew school. 
four days a week after regular school. And I don't remember learning what you write about in this chapter, though I wish I had. I think I would have enjoyed it more. And my favorite takeaway here was Sicilian latkes. Leave it to Italians to come up with such a scrumptious solution for a Jewish holiday dish. But would you take us through a bit of the history you provide in this section? Sure. I've come to believe, and and this isn't just in regards to latkes, but it's also why tomatoes ended up in in Italy. The entire experience or what happened culinarily in Europe with the rise of the Spanish Inquisition is that you know, Spain literally got squeezed like a tube of toothpaste, and a lot of toothpaste came out. And the, of course, the, the Jewish diaspora, which is such a, a fascinating history of this, this massive population, you know, moving across North Africa, up across places like Sicily, Sicily was not the only one, into Italy, up into Poland, and, and kind of figuring out all of the changes that, that were made and the foods that moved along because of that course. Is, is really pretty fascinating. And what's so interesting about, at least for me, about that journey of these peoples is that they're incredibly adaptable. So they, they didn't hold hard and fast to any particular tradition. They adapted as they went along. We end up having potato latkes, mostly because potatoes were so gosh darned available later on in Poland, you know, through the, the, the later part of the 17th century and 18th century. And so they adapted all along the way. And of course, there was a strong Jewish population in Sicily and, of course, across all of North Africa, which is why we also have things like shakshuka and the ingredients that are there. So I, I am fascinated by the whole European and Eastern European experience that resulted from from the cultural movements due to the Spanish Inquisition, which, uh, of course, was in, in one way an incredibly dark time in human history. And, and I think certainly historians of Catholicism would agree with that and Judaism. But the cultural enrichment that came out of it is fascinating, and it makes the tapestry of European cuisine so much more rich and vibrant. And, and I just think that, you know, we, we take a lot of foods not for granted, but we, we might appreciate them, but I think that, that understanding even a little bit of why something got to your plate the way it does or the way that it did can really add a, a whole nother layer of flavor in a way, of emotional flavor, of intellectual flavor to a dish. Oh, absolutely. And I was stunned to read that. You're right, that it wasn't until mid-19th century that potatoes became the basis for latkes. That happened because the the king of Poland at the time uh, was heavily advocating the growth of potatoes, which he had learned about when visiting the French court. There had been a lot of grain failures across Europe in the hundred years leading up to that. And so it looked like potatoes might be a decent way to feed people. Of course, if we if we carry that story on across to places like Ireland, then there are other consequences that end up then pushing people to the new world and where I'm sitting, New York City right now. So it, it is fascinating. Mm. Now. For those who may not have seen your shows when they came out, and imagine being unfamiliar with the Alton Brown universe, (laughs) will you explain how you use the term software, tactical hardware, and applications? Well, to me, I call all of my recipes applications. And the reason why is I always want to, to point out that I'm applying the lesson that I'm trying to teach. So the, the recipe 
exists as an application of what I would call the knowledge base of any show or, or any recipe. Tactical hardware is hardware, uh, meaning kitchen tools that are perhaps out of the normal battery to cuisine, so to speak, that are going to be very necessary for this. So I, I'm not going to sit there uh, on the page and write down every tool that you're going to need. I, I'm going to go under the assumption that if you've spent $40 on my book, you have a spoon. You probably have <laughs> a knife. You probably have a pot. So to me, tactical hardware things, I want you to look at this list because these are things that you're going to have to have for this dish. So that's tactical hardware. And software is uh, our ingredients. Uh, software is whatever is going into the dish. That's just kind of how I, I think about them. And, and I think about using words that are uh, a little more descriptive for how I think about food and how I think about cooking. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Alton Brown. He'll be at Variety Playhouse tomorrow for a book signing and author talk. Your shows and this book are paradise for punsters. <laughs> yes, let's start with Stake Your Claim, of course, spelled S-T-E-A-K. You recommend the reverse seer. How did that lead to your recognition that, I'm quoting you, in cooking technique is what matters most. When I started making shows, Stake Your Claim was the very first Good Eats episode, by the way. Mm -hmm. I was like so many other young culinary people, very focused on ingredients that you had to have this ingredient or you had to have that ingredient. Well, you've got, you can't make a good Southern biscuit without white lily flour because you've got to have this protein content in this. And then over the years, I've come to realize actually technique, the actual way you handle ingredients is in most cases more important than specifics about the ingredient itself. Now, the, the reverse sear steak, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, my very first recipe or application for Good Eats was a, a steak that was seared in a very, 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 very hot pan and then finished in the oven. It makes a really great steak. It also creates vast amounts of smoke, which most people have a really hard time getting rid of. <laughs> I, I get a lot of emails and things about smoke detectors and, and all of this kind of stuff. The, the thing about a reverse sear is that by cooking a steak at a very low temperature over a longer period of time and then searing it before you serve it gives you not only a steak that doesn't need to rest as long, but a steak that also produces a whole lot less smoke. So the, the truth is, is you know, I didn't invent reverse searing. It's, it's something that those of us that tinker with these kinds of things have been talking about, gosh, for at least a decade. Other people have written about it. Other people have tested them as well. So it's, it's kind of become more of an accepted application or accepted technique. But I thought that it was time to go back and give those people who, who were tired of taking out the batteries of their smoke detectors uh, <laughs> another way of making a, a good steak. And, you know, I, I, once I've done something, I keep tinkering with it. I, I never stop tinkering with it. So for me, an application or a recipe is a malleable plastic thing that, that needs constant poking and, and changing. Would you give us just a couple more examples about why technique is what matters above all? 
or let's put it this way. Let, let's go back to the, the biscuit example. I know people that will swear to you, well, you must use this flour. You must use this flour. You've got to use this kind of fat in your biscuits. My argument is, yes, that's, that's fine. And that's uh, in some cases backed up by tradition, or it might just be the way you like to work. But how you actually handle those ingredients, how you actually work the fat into the flour, how you bring those ingredients together into a dough matter usually more usually more than the fine print. Now, that doesn't mean that you can take concrete and make it into biscuits where you make something that looks like a biscuit. But, you know, if you're going to get down to, well, you know, this, this is bread flour. You can't make biscuits with bread flour. Well, actually, I can make biscuits with bread flour. And I would even argue that if you are a person that takes your, your biscuit batter and you beat the heck out of it and you overfold it and you don't make it wet enough, even if you have the perfect ingredients, my biscuits are going to be better than yours because I know what to feel for. I know what I'm, I'm looking for. I know what the dough needs for me. So this, this move from, from such kind of fetishizing of specifics and ingredients to paying more attention to what your own actions are, I, I think almost universally leads to better food. And it leads to food that allows people more control. I mean, you know, how, how do I feel if I, or how do you feel if let's stick with the biscuits? You know, I really want to make biscuits and I go to the grocery store, but they don't have white lily flour or they don't have soft winter wheat flour. All they've got is all purpose flour. Okay, fine. You've got good technique, buy that flour and make the biscuits everything's going to be fine. Now, some, you know, biscuit professor might be able to spot a difference, but trust me, they're going to be good biscuits if you know how to bring those ingredients together. Hmm. With a nod to the acclaimed writer, Joseph Conrad, the section Art of Darkness was especially appealing because it's about the wonders of cacao and contains a recipe, application, for my favorite of all foods, the brownie. Alton, what is the revolution on brownie baking 2.0? I have struggled with brownies. And I think that the reason that I struggle with brownies is because I try to make come up with a brownie that's like everything everybody wants out of a brownie. And the truth is, is everybody wants something different out of a brownie. For instance, me personally, I like brownies that are all kind of cracked and look like a black version of the Bonneville salt flats on top. And I like the <laughs> corners and I like it just chewy as heck and a little bit overcooked. I suspect that's because that was the brownie of my youth. Oh. But I had been kind of really wrestling with getting what I thought was a brownie that gave me everything that it's like, I don't want to eat a brownie that reminds me of a cake, right? I want a brownie that only reminds me of a brownie. The revolution in this particular application, I, I have to give the nod to my, my mother who was making my brownies one day and her dog had to go out. She ended up taking the brownies out of the oven, but instead of throwing them away, when she got back, she just put them back in the oven and she said they were perfect. So I'm like, okay, I got to think about this. What what happened there? And I started experimenting and found that actually the, the texture and to my mind, the flavor of a brownie can be uh, greatly affected by cooking in two stages with the resting stage in the middle. I'm not saying it is the only way to make a brownie, but I have found that for my liking and my taste, it is finally produced a brownie because I must have had at least five brownie recipes as I've tinkered with them over the years. But now I feel that, that I'm done. And, and I, in, the, in the chapter there, I, I do go into what at least I hope is a logical explanation of, of why this works the way that it does. And in the, in the show, we actually used uh, uh, some little toy race cars to explain making this thermal trip from being a raw dough to being a finished brownie. I have to point out that 
the book achieves the zany, wonderful aspects of the TV show you just mentioned, the little car and that part. Again, for people who have never seen the shows, can you describe the many elements that go into spending these moments with Alton Brown, the stickies, the sock puppets, all the goodies? You know, our, our motto has always been laughing brains are more absorbent. Um, in that if you can make people laugh or if you can at least entertain people, they will learn without knowing that they're learning. So to me, you know, like a lot of the weird little skits and the weird little science models are simply to help lead people to some aha moment. And, and it doesn't mean aha. I now understand the exact uh, nature of, you know, uh, starch solubilization or, or whatever. I just want people to go, oh, I see now why that would make a difference. And very often coming up with some kind of visual, funky, and occasionally ridiculous explanation for that really does work. And if it's a puppet, which we use lots of, our yeast puppets have always been very, very popular because once you make a sock puppet fart and burp, everybody loves <laughs> it right uh which is pretty much what yeasts do but to me it's like what, whatever i can come up with visually and that that will involve storytelling you know tv good instruction any good instruction should be storytelling right it is the most effective way to convey information it's why we have greek mythology it is why we have most of the bible it is why we have most of the great early literature so using anything that is a narrative form or a storytelling form is is what will get me where i need to go in a half hour tv show well congratulations on this most ambitious good eats for the final years cookbook. This is Alton Brown's sage advice for those wishing to undertake culinary projects. Never bring a knife to a scissor fight. If you want to learn to cook, start with eggs. Read before you cook. Buy your spices whole whenever you can and grind just before use. Food can sense fear better than a dog. Martinis are food. If cooking isn't fun, you're doing it wrong. Alton Brown. Thank you. It was a, a, a lot of work, but a labor of love. Oh, this has been a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on again. I very much appreciate it. I'm a big fan, as you know. Alton Brown the James Beard and Peabody Award-winning chef and host of Good Eats will give a talk and book signing at Variety Playhouse tomorrow. More information is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, composer-pianist Maria Thompson-Corley and soprano Maria Clark will tell us about their new album, Soul Sanctuary. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Empowering spirituals such as this are on the newly released album Soul Sanctuary. The arranger and pianist is Maria Thompson Corley. She joins me now via Zoom with soprano and Spelman College educator Maria Clark. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. Thank you. Curious about how you two met and when you decided to create this album together. I met Maria Thompson Corley when I was a fresh and green behind the ears freshman at Florida State University. She was on faculty, which I did not realize at the time, at A&M University. And she also was married to Chris Corley at that time. And he was a grad student, a vocal student, wonderful baritone at Florida State. And so she would come over to play for him a lot. And then she ended up collaborating, being a collaborative pianist as well at Florida State. And I got the, the opportunity to work with her. And I was just elated to work with her because I was so impressed by her virtuosic uh, piano skills. And she worked with me uh, with coachings and she also helped me with piano a bit. And she would organize uh, concerts of African-American composers works at Florida State. And I was, I just felt like I was on cloud nine that Maria Thompson Corley asked me to sing on these concerts. I was very kind of enamored with her when I met her at Florida State. And from there we lost touch. I transferred from, uh, from Florida State to Manhattan School of Music. In my after my second year, and then we kind of caught up later uh, via Facebook. And um, when I became aware of her again, she was performing like with orchestras, and I happened to see a video of her and a former Florida A&M student, um, Benjamin Polite, performing some selections from Porgy and Bess, and I was just so impressed with the beauty of her sound and you know, just everything about, about the way that she performed. 
So um, the spirituals thing, though, came from, well, my first spiritual arrangement was for my now ex-husband, Christopher Corley, for his master's recital at Juilliard, and that is Steal Away. He'd heard a choral arrangement that I had done just for fun, and he asked me to, to create two things for his master's recital. And so this piece was something that he also sang um, at Florida State. And so Maria um, Clark then came up with the idea of doing some of my art songs or spirituals for um, the National Association of Negro Musicians Convention or some similar thing. And this was pandemic times, like, or before pandemic times. And so, you know, things just didn't really materialize because of course everything was being canceled. And she had mentioned the idea of um, performing them. And she actually did start performing some of them with Trey Clegg, her accompanist, who has been her accompanist for years in Atlanta. So like the idea of making a recording was kind of tossed around. And so since I had more time than usual, although I was filling it up with a lot of other things, but you know, like my schedule was different than it usually had been. And so still pandemic. And I was like, Hey, are you serious about doing this? Like, do you want to do this or and so she was game. And so I flew down to Atlanta where I have two sisters and uh, brought my son along, which was a nice little trip for him. This was in this past summer. So things weren't quite as highly contagious or however you want to put that as um, they had been before there were vaccines, et cetera. And so we did it. And it was just an, a wonderful um, musical collaborative experience. Um, she got Ismail Akbar, the cellist on board and yeah, it was, just, it was just an amazing situation. You know, I just had seen it coming even a, a year or so ago. Well, this question is for both of you. Historically, what was the function of these spirituals? They were a coping mechanism for our people and the, the adversity that they were going through the oppression, and they were born out of slavery and post-slavery times. And I know that I still use them today as a coping mechanism. I don't know what I do without them. And I grew up listening to my mom, my aunts, my grandmother use them as a coping mechanism. And for me, um, in addition to that, I mean, I actually was raised in Canada of um, Jamaican ancestry. So obviously um, being enslaved is also part of the Jamaican black uh, experience. But my parents who met at uh, Montreal's McGill University, my mom is from Bermuda, sang um, spirituals, these, some of these same tunes in a choral society that was formed there. And so we had recordings of Roland Hayes and we had Paul Robeson and um, you know others. I mean, Mahalia Jackson also sang some spirituals that I grew up listening to as well. But I also wanted to mention the coded language that sometimes is included. For example, in Steal Away, Deep River, you know, you can all see it as a coping mechanism. You can see it as talking about going to heaven, uh, or you can see it as talking about going across um, the border to Canada, where, you know, people could really be, I mean, no utopia, but, you know, certainly uh, it was a better situation if they could get there. So, yeah, that's another aspect of it.
So how did you decide which spirituals to include in this CD? Well, these are all the arrangements that I had at that point. Even though I had really suddenly become a composer in the sense that people pay me to do it, I really thought of myself primarily as a pianist until very recently. I mean, the arranging thing was something that I would do for fun. And as I said, those first things that I was asked to do, and then a couple people asked me to do some other things. Yeah, this was kind of all the spirituals arrangements that I had ever done that could be for solo voice. There were three things that were thrown in that were born of improvisation. I mean, Maria wanted to include some things that were more, I guess, gospel hymn oriented. So we improvised those like on the spot, basically for the recording. And then um, she wanted me to do something for solo piano. So I did my version of Hold On, like sort of recorded it in my living room because I, I, I don't know, somehow I, I feel a little bit more intimidated, I guess, if something's a little more up-tempo, but I felt like we needed something more up-tempo and I wanted it to be something that was kind of jazzy. I then recreated something that I had come up with off the top of my head. But yeah, that's that's why <laughs> those particular pieces are there. Well, speaking of up-tempo, may I tell you some of my favorites here? Sure. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Mm. And this is a, a song I especially love in a version with... Dr. John, if you could believe it, oh. and Mavis Staples. Oh, wow. Are you familiar mm. with that? I don't know. Oh, yes. Oh, go ahead. I know this. I know I know Mavis Staples. I know them, but I don't know that version. But yeah, I'm very familiar with Mavis Staples and also Dr. John, but I, I will have to look that up. Well, you get on some happy feeling yourself there. I mean, this is celebratory. Would you take us through your version? Well, actually, it was one of the ones that my ex-husband asked me to arrange for his graduate recital. But I found it, you know, years later, and I decided that I wanted to um, update it a bit. So I added um, the opening and the interlude, which is, I'm going to lay down this heavy load. By and by, I'm going to lay down this heavy load. you look at something that you did years and years ago and sometimes you 
think that maybe you could edit it or and improve it. So yeah, that was purely it. And it was my fake gospel piano aspirations put on paper. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound fake at all, Maria. <laughs> well, I didn't grow up playing gospel piano. You know, I grew up, as I say, um, you know, studying classical piano and I listened to all kinds of music. I was I thought it was really cool that you have such an eclectic musical taste because I'm totally there with you. Like I was never just fully grounded in the idea that classical music is the best music, so to speak, or the ivory tower of music. I think any music that communicates emotion, human emotion is is fine with me. So um, I don't know that I could ever be a gospel pianist who felt secure in doing the up-tempo things, as I mentioned, but when I wrote it down, then I could do it and have a lot of fun with it, so. Uh, <laughs> well, the fun comes through. Another favorite is Wade in the Water. And Maria Clark, you sing this beautifully on the album. Oh, thank you. Yes, your version is very different from the Alvin Ailey recording, I've Come to Know and Love, which is heard when Ailey performs Revelations at every one of their dance performances. But your version is very different, not least because that is sung by a man with a very deep voice. <laughs> Maria Thompson Corley, would you tell us about your arrangement here where you had cello to the piano and voice? Yes. So the three with cello came from Deep River, which my daughter, who is more of a pop singer or a soul singer, on her senior recital in undergrad, she asked me if I would arrange something for her and she wanted Deep River. And there was supposed to be a cellist um, involved who was her, her teacher's partner, but then he, he backed out. So in the end, I had this arrangement with cello and I have a friend who I play duos with. And then once that was, you know, I liked the way that it turned out. I mean, I thought Deep River is really a hard thing to arrange with that iconic arrangement. But then, you know, I I'd started morphing into the thought that, okay, maybe people do like to perform my music. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll put two others because people might, if they're going to get a cellist, want something else to the cellist to do. So that was why there's a cello. And I, I wanted it to seem sort of furtive and a little bit nervous, but I also kind of liked the idea of having a, a groove, you know, like I liked the having, you know, that ostinato groove going with the cello. Excuse no, me, would you explain the term ostinato. Oh, right. So an ostinato is a repeated pattern, basically a repeated musical gesture. And I think it usually is associated with, you know, a rhythmic gesture, but it could be something very simple. Like if anybody knows Dido's Lament, you know, there are a number of forms from way back there in, in music of African people, you know, ostinato is just very constantly something, it, you know, brings the spirit down as we say you know you this repeated rhythmic and and musical gesture then in a bass line and with drums that you would find in in worship services So that's kind of what I was trying to get. And, you know, that 
just building something that was, to me, it's sort of fun, but it's also, um, I hopefully a little bit conveys the anxiety that one would have wading in the water. And, you know, they're the two different ways of looking at it. One is that you, why do you go into the water if you're trying to escape dogs? That's why you go in the water, you know? And so I see um, different meanings involved. Very effective. I associate no hiding place with the poet Maya Angelou. And you have a rousing rendition here. Would you take us through that? That was written for Benjamin Polite, who um, I mentioned earlier. He asked me, and I had never heard it because, you know, everybody wasn't streaming everything back when I wrote it originally. I sort of give allusion a little bit to something I was trying to anyway, a little bit Calypso-ish because it's not feeling hot, hot, hot. But, you know, I was thinking of that that song, uh, that Calypso song, feeling hot, hot, hot. And, you know, the idea of, of um, you can't hide from basically the devil. <laughs> and so that idea of evoking the fires of hell a little bit with a little bit of Calypso sound. I love that description, <laughs> by the way. And then I included a little bit of the Dies Irae in that one moment, you know, where he says he wanted to go to heaven, but he had to go to hell. And we've got a little Dies Irae going on. Soprano Maria Clark with composer and pianist Maria Thompson Corley. We'll return with more of our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation with soprano Maria Clark and composer-pianist Maria Thompson Corley. Here, Maria Clark shares her personal connection to the spirituals and hymns on the new release, Soul Sanctuary. You know, people often ask me which spiritual on the CD that I feel most connected to. And mine is, I want Jesus to walk with me. because I've gone through some very 
trying times in my life. And particularly lately also, I recently had to go into the hospital with my son and, and he had brain surgery. Oh my goodness. I hope he's and okay. Yes, he is. Thank you so much. He's, he's back up, uh, grace of God, bouncing around and bobbing around and going to school and getting in trouble again. <laughs> All <laughs> so good. he's back to normal. <laughs> but in the hospital, he was getting ready to go into surgery. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm about to lose it. <laughs> the only thing that I could think to do to calm myself down really was to take my phone out and, and play that I want Jesus to walk with me. When I listened to that, it just calmed, it, it immediately calmed my spirit and I just knew everything was gonna be okay. And that's what I get with this spiritual because a lot of times as we walk through life, we're, we're, we're facing all kinds of spiritual attacks anyway. And if you're a believer, you know, in, in Christ and Christian, I, you know, I never claimed to be a perfect Christian, but I definitely am a believer. So I, I kind of call upon that to, to get me through things. And, you know, these spirituals really did help me to deal with that. And another one of them is the steal away. It just, Maria's arrangement is just sounds so ethereal to me. I just feel better and, and my spirit feels uplifted when I listen to them. And then I think of our history as a people, you know, when I hear something like the steal away and yeah, this is, those are a few of the ones and the, you know, for instance, the, the improv interlude that we did, Lord, I'll go. I grew up in church. That's just a, a, a short snippet of listening to the elders in, in my small church in, in the countryside in Georgia, how they would mix pouring out their souls and their hearts with praying and they would mix it with singing. And this is one of the ones that they would just all of a sudden go into from out of nowhere when we were in the middle of, you know, just worshiping God. And I, I just wanted to call upon something from my childhood. And that was the reason that I, I chose that one. And uh, Maria just kind of went with me on the piano part for the improv. And, and she did a wonderful job of kind of capturing the spirit of that. What you're saying attests to the enduring power of these spirituals. They may go back 200 plus years, but they resonate profoundly today. And although these songs are Christian worship songs, would you talk about how they are relatable to people of different religious backgrounds? I mean, I think on just removing them, which, you know, you can't really remove them from the words, but I think even if you didn't understand the words, they're some of the most beautiful melodies ever. I mean, like, can you think of a more perfectly constructed art song uh, melody than Deep River, for example? Yeah, they're just beautifully 
constructed and and you know these soaring beautiful melodies or that appeal to just the gamut of human emotion you're talking about the um, celebratory nature of glory glory hallelujah I mean you know even if you weren't thinking of glory glory hallelujah to God I mean I think everybody has had the experience of feeling like something has been lifted off their shoulders or I would hope that they have or at least they can aspire to the day when they wouldn't feel that they had were burdened down. So there is obviously a deep current of, of worship involved, but I think you could just listen for the beauty and the common sharing of deep emotion, whether it's lament or longing, or and I think whatever you believe, everybody has wanted to feel like they weren't alone. Or, you know, honestly, I think you could just listen to Maria Clark's voice all day long. And that's all you need. You know, whatever she was singing, just listen to her voice and call it a day. (laughs) Talk about ethereal. You've got it, Maria. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, you do. I love the title, Soul Sanctuary. I mean, sanctuary implies the great gathering hall of the church. And yet, this also speaks to the fact that these songs are a sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Amen. Did you come up with the title together? We did, we did. There, uh, you're laughing, so I'll, I'll let you go first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it brings about a giggle for me because we went back and forth. I did about three or four titles that I had that came to me. And then Maria did about three or four titles that came to her. And then we compared and contrasted. Then we got our own separate focus groups and kind of, you know, I called my parents and my friends and said, what do you think about this title? What do you think about this? And Maria did the same. And then we eventually came together because she, I think Maria, did you and your sister come up with Sanctuary? I think so. Uh, You know, unfortunately, the older I get, the less certain things stick in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think Maria came came from her end. She came up with Sanctuary. And I, while I liked Sanctuary, I thought it needed something else. And I said, well, can we put soul in front of it? Because it's a sanctuary. These spirituals are meant to be a sanctuary for your soul and for your spirit. And I think Maria Thompson Corliss said, yeah, that's it. I like that. Yeah. And and we both agreed. And um, as it turns out, well, Maria Clark is, I guess, maybe beats me a little bit as being a Prince fan because she mentioned, (laughs) which is saying a fair amount. But um, so she, she said that I guess Prince has a recording called Soul Sanctuary too, as well. I mean, so since we both had a little bit of that in our background, I mean, that wasn't the primary focus of that title, but you know, there's that too. <laughs> no, no problem with the copyright there? No, titles can't be, uh, you can use the same title for all kinds of things, actually. That's why you have different songs with the same title all the time. Ah. Maria Thompson Corley, Maria Clark, this has been a joy. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'm honored. Yes. (laughs)
she took the word, word right out of my mouth. I'm very much honored to be a guest on your show. Thank you so much for having us. And I'm just elated that you enjoyed our, our work. Composer and pianist Maria Thompson-Corley with soprano Maria Clark. Their new album, Soul Sanctuary, is available to stream on Apple Music and Spotify. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m., Artist and sculptor Kevin Box, his new exhibition, Origami in the Garden, is on view now at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. Plus, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Marina Sky, the set designer behind Atlanta's Trap Music Museum. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.